Introducing From the Glove Box, an automotive podcast with Mike and Tony Tavage, the father-son team and owners of Team T Automotive in Northern Indiana. Today you'll find out why people bring in their car, what to keep in your car, and when to retire your car. Hey, this is Mike and Tony Tadich, uh, independent shop owners, coming to you again with another episode of From the Glove Box. Uh, again, we're independent automotive service center owners. Uh, we've been, uh, uh, gosh, uh, four decades almost. Almost. Yeah. In this business, that sounds like a lot. Makes us makes one of us sound pretty old. Not sure which one that is, but pretty uh, sure that's you. <laughs> Anyhow, we always open it up, and uh, so how are you doing today, Tony? Just wonderful, beautiful, tired, happy, enjoyment. Tired, happy, beautiful, joyful. enjoyful, mint. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's got nothing going on in his life, you know, that uh, four kids and a wife, you know, and twins out of the four also. That's not, uh, you don't got nothing going on. No, no, not, not running a few shops, you know, doing, a, doing some little league stuff and all that, doing, uh, doing some good, uh, good deeds for our church and stuff too. But, yeah. uh, yeah, you have nothing to be tired about. You nothing. should be full of energy, young I'm strapping ball of energy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm about the size of a tennis ball of energy. <laughs> Well, you need to step. You need to step it up a little bit more. We need to get, bring a good program for our audience this week. So, one of the subjects that uh, came up in our discussion and stuff is what are some of the main reasons people bring their cars into our service center? And I think we would focus on, um, you know, you know what are you know not just routine, not just oil change and those type of things, but what are problematic things. You know, if we would name the top five or six things that uh, that we bring a car into a service center, what you got some uh, feedback on what that would be? My car won't start. My tire's low. My check engine light's on. Another trouble light on my dash is on. Or the car died going down the road. All right. So a couple run a bill, right? Drivability, check engine light. So what about, let's, let's tackle that check engine light thing. Because, uh, you know... For our consumers out there, you may not realize that that light can come on for a thousand different reasons. The whole terminology check engine light and the way that works is really a poor, poor design. It's kind of a catch-all um, thing, and it, it could be coming on for so many different reasons. And then oftentimes, if we've got an older car that's come on, it's come off, whatever, and we think, ah, it's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. It is something we should... Pay attention to, especially if the check engine light is flashing. Flashing, flashing is a major no-no. Uh, I was on a I was on a pretty powerful boat a couple and uh, you know, not too long ago, and uh, uh, twin engine boat and stuff, and literally on the dash, this big check engine light came on, and that baby shut down and <laughs> was pretty powerless and stuff. So. As we think about those, but the check engine light, it, it is a, um, you know, there's always jokes or pictures where somebody stops, pull off the side of the road, opens the hood, looks, yep, engine's still there, closes the hood and takes off. Um, yep. But that that is, uh, I, you know, a good description of a check engine light, it's sometimes that person that has a heart attack and then says, yeah, I've been having chest pains for 
you know, a couple months, sometimes that check engine light is that pre-warning that says, hey, something's not quite right. Um, let's get it in and get it checked out. So um, uh, I would not blow that off and not get it checked out because you think you left your gas cap loose or whatever. And I think I'll respectfully drop a hint on the check engine light. Where should you go get a check engine light checked at? Is there is there a good place and not so good place, Tony? You should go get your check engine light checked at your local independent automotive repair shop. You should not go get your check engine light checked at your local AutoZone or O'Reilly. Not, not names of part. Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> no, uh, at your I, local parts stores. Parts people are parts people. They are designed to sell you parts. They are not designed to be diagnosticians or to be technicians that are going to tell you why that check engine light is on, what is wrong with it, and everything else. And there is no magic box that tells you exactly what the check engine light code is related to part-wise uh, that's going to 100% uh, guaranteed fix that code. So a code is a starting point, not a fixing point. It starts the path of what should be tested and what should be looked at. It is not, if you have an oxygen sensor code, it does not mean you should replace your oxygen sensor. It means that that circuit has a problem. So in things about this, Tony, um, if the local parts store has this thing called a code reader, you all could go online and buy your own for how much, Tony? 70 bucks. Yeah, probably. And you could probably buy some for 25 your local independent service center has a not just a code puller, but an information source called a scanning tool that's much more sophisticated. What do you think the average service center has in a in a in scanning equipment? Probably a, a small shop, probably three grand. A shop of our size is probably ten grand or north. Yeah, and we may have two or three or four or five of those to fit different brands and different years, makes, and models and stuff like that. So a, a good size shop could have thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth of that type of stuff. And what that is designed to do, that is designed to give us much more detail. Because like Tony said, uh, that initial thing will say you have a problem with your oxygen sensor, but that doesn't tell you whether it's in the circuitry whether it's the component itself, whether it's uh, some other thing leading up to it. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of bad things. I don't think anybody's intentionally out there, you know, to rip you off, but good shops figure out and they do testing and they do diagnostics on there where generally parts stores are just there to sell you parts. Yep. So. And I can't tell you how many times I've had a car come in that has a PO 300, which is a random misfire check engine light. And the car comes in and we open the hood. And the very first thing I see is 15 brand spanking new parts because it's been going to the parts store. Nobody's actually tested anything on the car. So the customer has not only wasted time, they've wasted the parts store's time, their own time. They've wasted probably hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in parts. And they very simply could have gone to an automotive repair shop, had somebody either read the codes first and then tell them the path that it was going down or have somebody just start to perform testing and they could have spent a hundred to $200 in testing, maybe $300 in testing and been $700 ahead of where they're at now with a thousand dollars worth of wasted parts for a wiring problem or something else that they didn't get fixed. Yeah. Think of, think of uh, that's a great, great point with those. Think of this code polar 
as I live in Chicago and I want to drive to Los Angeles. Um, that's what it does. It says, well, here's Los Angeles, but you want to go to a specific place in Los Angeles. Well, the, the, the good equipment that your local shop has says, okay, it's in, um, it's in Hollywood. So now we got Los Angeles, but we're down to a, down to a suburb. Then it goes into the deeper and it goes into the street. Well, it's main street. Well, that's a little closer, but it allows a shop to zero in and then it goes into the address and then it goes in north, south, east, or west and all those things. That's what um, your shops allow to really zero in. All this code polar that you can buy online or your, your local parts store uses just says, I'm in Chicago and there's Los Angeles. It does not zero down in on the problem. Um, it's, 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 it's not a great GPS. So if you're using that to travel, wouldn't be good. Well, and I want you to think of this. So you can hook a machine up and get information with anything. So we'll use an x-ray for example. So you hurt yourself. You need to have an x-ray on your leg. X-ray does the same thing as a code polar shows me the picture of your leg from the inside out. Right. Yep. Code polar does the same thing. Tells me what the code is. Nothing positive happens with a code. Nothing positive happens with an x-ray until it's read by somebody that knows what's going on with it. So the technician that's working on your car, reading the codes, reading the information that's coming out of your car, reading the live data, that type of stuff is the same thing as the doctor that has to read the x-ray to tell you that you broke your ankle. And how to repair it. Yes. Properly. And then has to come up with, with the repair side of things. So we talk about this all the time, and I think this is something that customers should be aware of, or clients in automotive. We talk about the three C's, concern, cause, and correction. The customer tells you what the concern is. We have to come up with the cause, and we have to come up with the correction of it. And, and you know, without having that person read the x-ray to tell you, all right, the, x, the ankle's broke, and this is how we're going to correct it, you don't have a path of correction at all. It's, it's ankle broken, not broke. But you're always correcting sure. my language. Okay. Try to so, help you there. <laughs> the same thing with the code at the parts store. They're giving you the correction without ever telling you the cause. What if, what if the correction isn't for the correct cause? So there's nobody at a parts store that's going to tell you why this happened or, hey, this electrical wire uh, got pulled out of the connector and that's why your oxygen sensor isn't reading or so on and so forth. Yeah, good good points. We talked about a lot of other reasons that cars come into the shop. Um, and, you know, we got pretty lengthy on this one, but people call and ask questions. I'll leave you with this piece of it. When you call into a service center and you ask how much is it to fix my check engine light, my brakes, whatever and stuff, here, here's a really, really good tip. Nobody can rightly correctly diagnose that or tell you what that car is going to need without you bringing the car by doing a full detailed inspection by a professional technician. And it happens in our industry all the time, Tony. Yep. And people call in and they want us over the phone price. And, and respectfully, some other shops do that. Good professional shops don't do that. You don't call the doctor and say, my kid broke his arm. How much is it to fix it? You don't call the dentist to say, I just ate a piece of candy and I broke my molar. How much is it, is it to fix it? You don't call the heating and air conditioning guy and say, my air conditioner doesn't work. The same goes with that. So when you want to do that, call a professional 
service center, schedule them a time. Most generally, they'll do a free preliminary inspection to kind of give you a path and have it professionally inspected so it gets tested and diagnosed correctly. Tony's right. We see so many cars, we open up the hood and they've got eight or 10 new shiny components on that car underneath the hood. And they spent all this money where they could have, because they thought they were going to save some money and not go into the, not going to the service center, but make sure that you call in. And, and we know the only way to be 100% accurate is, is to do a proper inspection by a professional technician. So that's a little bit from uh, Glovebox, Mike and Tony Tadich, independent shop owners in Northern Indiana. Hey, this is Mike and Tony Tadich, uh, independent shop owners, coming to you with our podcast from the glove box. We got a caller that called in, Tony, and said, what are good things that I should keep in my car? A gun. There we go. Knife. Yeah, here I go again. Extra ammunition. Yeah. He lives in rural Indiana in a town of 4,000 people. I don't think you need those. Yeah, you do. Okay, whatever. Let's let's stick the the caller wanted to know um the caller wanted to know that uh what do you keep in your car that is important to have in your car? So I would think uh people a lot of times keep jumper cables in their car in case they need to jump start a car. Still don't understand. Well, because um, we're trying to reach everybody in America. Actually, we, you shouldn't keep a gun in your car. There it you should go. be in the car when you're in the car, but it should be out of the if car it's when legally, you're not in the if car. If it's legally uh, permitted and all those types of things. So anyhow, back to yes. what we do for a living, which is... Jumper cables. You know, repair cars. Jumper cables yeah. would be a good thing. Road flares. Road flares. <laughs> <laughs> you got road flares in your truck? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you probably do. So. <clears throat> no. Um, you know, depend, I would say a lot of that depends on what you, um, what you have, uh, what year a car, how old of a car, those type of things. So here's an example. This just happened to us on a little trip with a friend of ours, uh, uh, had a flat tire on a, <laughs> have your extra spare tire in the car or the <laughs> yeah. flat tire that you had. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of modern vehicles that do not come with a spare tire, including yeah. my Toyota minivan. Yeah. They only come with a way to fill it up. And it's kind of like a fix a flat stuff that, um, in this situation didn't work. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a much longer story than we, what we can go with that. But, um, I would think, uh, you know, maybe, especially if you're in the North during the winter months, you know, some type of, you know, blankets, extra clothes, you know, jagged. You know me in the back of my truck. I got a full wardrobe of. Well, what I'm thinking of is you in the back of your truck with your full wardrobe. Then I'm thinking Dan Luth, who's a longtime employee of ours and friend and stuff, that has a floor jack, uh, jack stands, uh, full impact, all the sockets, and basically could fix the entire car on the side of the road. Yeah. So, like a rolling toolbox. Yeah. Plus, he can put his canoe or whatever on the roof of his. Yeah. Yeah. go uh go out and do some fun stuff but you know i think in the old days when people traveled a lot um i saw an old car at a uh at a uh car show um yesterday actually um and it said from where we live to nashville tennessee is about 400 miles uh this car set the land speed record going to uh nashville um 
in five days and 11 hours. So this, this car on the side of the car was, um, said I, they, they set a land speed record driving from Northern Indiana to Nashville, Tennessee, and it took them five days and 11 hours. Pedal car? No, but it was 1900s. I mean, it was, a, <laughs> so it had that markings all over that. So in that, in that old days, you know, the old Model A's, Model T's, you always saw two spare tires, one on each side of the car, because you're changing tires all the time and those type of things. Yeah. So you had all those other things going on. So if you're driving an older vehicle, you may carry extra antifreeze. You may carry, you know, a gallon of washer fluid. If you got a car that uses oil, you would carry some extra oil to add to that. Um, you know, all sorts of, I think, I think that I do, I do carry a flashlight, carry a roll of uh, blue shop towel. Um, I carry, I actually carry a uh, squeegee. So after I drive my car through the car wash, I can squeegee my car off in the parking lot and I carry a chamois. So I drive my car in the parking lot, car wash doesn't dry. Um, I have all my hitch pieces, my hitch connectors and all that type of stuff. Tow rope. Um, I have every single size of hitch ball that you would potentially, uh, ratchet straps, bungee cords. I do carry ratchet straps, bungee cords. I carry a sledgehammer in my truck. <laughs> For the same reason I carry a gun. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I had one in there, you know, but the darn thing has come in really handy. We were, you we also were, carry a fire nozzle, well, fire hose nozzle. That's another reason, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, that sledgehammer, you know, we were moving your brother in law out of the house and we had a junky piece of furniture and we needed to break it up. We had it right there. So it was pretty handy. Yeah, I do remember swinging <laughs> that over my head into the desk. Yeah. But, uh, I think again, steering back to the thing, what are the important things to, to carry in your car? Um, Maybe, you know, a, you know, a charge cord for your phone or, you know, all, all sorts of things like that, or some way to call. But the, the one good thing that you just brought up was flashlight. Extremely important to be able to do that. Tire pressure gauge is a great thing. Um, we used to, um, I know what some of the giveaways at our shops, we've uh, give, given away tire pressure gauges. Very few people check that stuff anymore. Last time we gave one of those away, I remember one customer came back in with it in their hand and said, I don't need one of these. I have a tire pressure light. <laughs> yeah we all are uh we're all reliant on uh on those types of things stuff but, uh, yeah those are some of the things that i think you would carry in a car um you know just kind of uh i got i got one that i always carry what's that roll of toilet paper <laughs> never know just in case uh, tony has allergies quite a bit so he's uh using it to blow his nose as much as it do but that may be part of that and stuff but yeah, there's uh I will tell you uh respectfully when you bring your car into the service center, be careful cuz sometimes we do have to get in the glove compartment to get a uh registration or whatever. We've we've seen respectfully some stuff that we, we can really give a rated R story yeah, on we're what not, we've seen inside of cars. We're not going to do that, but <laughs> now we're not trying to be uh snoopy in people's cars and stuff, but I mean respectfully a lot of times people keep customer records, so maybe we want to um somebody'll say, "Hey, please check the history to see if that service has been done recently and stuff like that. I would say that's a good thing to think about is where do you keep prior service records? Because if you move to a different town or city or you um, are switching service centers, 
being able to carry the history, the records that you've serviced your car with are extremely important. Um, so many people come to our shops, uh, uh, new customers, they've just moved in and they have no prior service uh, history. And it's just like if you switch doctors, you should take your medical history and pass it on to the next doctor. It helps the service center service your car a lot better. So I would say that's a good piece too. Yeah, I, I'm torn on whether or not you keep that car though. Receipt, that type of thing. No, it'd be good to keep copies at the very least. So should have a copy in your uh, flame retardant case, whatever storage device you have at home also. Oh, flame retardant. Do so. not carry the title for your car in your car. Now nah, that's not a good idea, Coach, because when it gets stolen, it's really yeah. easy for them to yeah. sign that off and sell it. I've seen that multiple <laughs> times. Where Go check my records, and there's the title for the car sitting right next to the last oil change receipt. So. Here's a good thing, too. If you stay with a regular service center like our uh, TMT Automotives in northern Indiana and others around the country, uh, they have great service records of your car, so they can historically check what's been done and what's not been done. Um, so that's a great way to really service a car well, um, same as going to a regular doctor and not bouncing around and stuff. So if there was any tip out of that that side of it, I would say, you know, have a good solid service center that keeps good records of what they've done so you can so they can keep track of that for you, and that takes the burden off the consumer. So yep. a little bit about that, uh, what to keep in your car, uh, Mike and Tony Tadich from the Glove Box. Driving the discussion today is brought to you by Auburn Gear. With Auburn Gear, you enjoy the top-of-the-line American-made diffs. Our extensive lineup includes specialty models for your specific needs, from everyday driving to performance racing, hauling loads on the highway, or conquering the toughest trains. Auburn Gear has satisfied power enthusiasts for over 50 years. Visit AuburnGear.com for more. All right, Mike and Tony Tadich back with you. Uh, driving the discussion is this segment uh, driven by Auburn Gear. Our friends at Auburn Gear, a uh, uh, wonderful place to do things. And I know we've got some spots on to tell, tell you all the great things that they do. So um, our subject this week is when, as our car gets older, and uh, when is it time to part ways with it? When is it... When is it really not a good idea to continue to pour money in that thing? That question gets asked to us many, many times, you know, with automobiles. Um, and I think um, I'll start out just real briefly, and then Tony can put his uh, two cents in, is I think that question gets asked uh, quite a bit. I think the first thing is most of us need to understand how long a properly maintained car can really run. Uh you, everybody out there, your parents, your grandparents may have never driven a car past 100,000 miles. Um, and if they did, they were doing major engine rebuilds and the body was rusted and all those types of things. That's changed drastically in the last, you know, 20 years probably where a modern automobile, 300,000, 400,000, Tony, 500,000? 500,000. Yeah. I mean, if you service it properly and really follow a good maintenance program, sometimes well above what uh, manufacturer recommendations are, and we'll talk more about that, but you can get a lot of mileage out of a car. Modern cars don't rust out near as much, and there's a lot of lot of benefits. But uh, 
give us some examples or maybe real life scenarios of, you know, situations where, you know, maybe it is time to part ways and, you know, move on from this car. So a lot of times when I look at cars and parting ways, it more so has to do with if it has higher mileage and has multiple systems with major problems. So meaning, let's say your car has 200,000 miles on it. Let's say it's got a major brake problem. It needs pads, rotors, calipers, hoses, a master cylinder. And then let's also say it's got suspension issues. It needs ball joints, tie rod ends, and things of that nature. Then let's say it's got a third issue and needs a set of tires. That may be time where you start to contemplate whether or not this car is going to be worth putting the money in because you're going to put three to $4,000 in that car. So really at that point, you're at the Y in the road. You got two choices. Either you're going to put three to four grand in that car and you're going to, you're going to keep it another year to two years, or you're going to get rid of that car at that point in time. I think there's a massive misnomer um, with valuation of vehicles. A lot of people will tell me when it comes time to make that decision, well, the car is not worth putting three or $4,000. And my question always back to our clients and our consumers is, um, what is the replacement cost of that car? So while that car might have only cost you three or four grand to buy, and now you're going to put three or $4,000 in it two to three years later, that car probably could cost you ten dollars to $12,000 to replace it at today's prices. So if you wanted to, if you like the car and you don't have any issues with how the car handles and drives other than repairing it, wouldn't it make more sense to go ahead and put three to $4,000 in it instead of going and spending $10,000? So I remember a long time ago, I had a, a client that had an Audi um, and it was a, it was a newer Audi, um, like a three, four year old Audi. And it needed a bunch of oil leaks repaired. And he's like, I'm just going to go. On an Audi? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Shocker. Shocker. <laughs> so he's like, I'm just going to go trade it. I'm like, hey, man, why are you going to throw $40,000 at a $3,000 problem? And he said, huh. And I said, you know, when you when you think about this, you can spend three grand and fix this car and essentially have the same car that you would have to go buy new off the dealership lot for $40,000. So why are you going to spend $40,000 over a $3,000 problem? It makes no financial sense whatsoever. And I think a lot of people get hung up on that, that they don't want to put money into an older vehicle or a vehicle that they've had and they get shiny objects in there versus you could put the money in that car. Let's go back to the, the $3,000 car example and you got to put $3,000 in it. You'll have $6,000 in that car. Are you better off having $6,000 in that car for the first three years of ownership than you are going and spending $10,000 on another car and possibly having problems with that car that you have to put money into ownership in year one? Which one's better financial-wise? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really great point and stuff. And so many people rush off to do that. And you know, a lot of times we'll share with uh, with our consumers, our customers coming in the shops, and we'll say, if you like the way a new car looks, if you like the way it smells, drives, feels, whatever, then go buy one. But if you if if that's not a big deal to you, and it's it's really reliable transportation, all that, we can make a car last a long, long time. We tease with this, but it's very true. 99% of the time, we can fix it cheaper than you can trade it. 
And Tony and I have experienced, and I'm sure other shops out there have, uh, and consumers as well, you've you've experienced, you went and traded off that car and you ended up with a bigger piece of crap than the one you had. Um, and well, yeah. and that, that always goes to the other question that I ask, um, or that I phrase sometimes, is this. So you had you bring me in a 2006 Nissan Rogue. It's like, all right, you've owned it for three years. It needs $4,000 worth of work. So let me ask you a question. If you drove by and saw that Nissan Rogue sitting on a, on a lot and it had everything fixed, so it had all the items fixed that we need to fix for $4,000 right now, and the price tag on it was $4,000, would you buy the car? Yeah, very valid statement because right now, if your car is not drivable, it may be worth 500 bucks or less. It may be worth scrap, so it's worth nothing. But would you buy that car fixed up? And that that's a really important piece with that. And and most people, you would. So, you know, really think about how you maintain that and stuff. We use a saying, and Tony and I are involved in a national shop owners group, so we work with other shops and, and teach things. But we talk to everybody about buying miles. So, so yeah, that may be three grand to repair that car and stuff like. But you're buying maybe another fifty thousand miles out of that car, maybe another three to five years of driving. So you have to weigh that. Um, when we say a car is not worth it, that that's a it's a, that's a bad statement because a car's never been an investment. It's not an appreciation asset like your house is. It's a cost of life. It's a cost of freedom. It's a cost of getting to work, getting to church, getting on, going to vacation, whatever y'all want to do. That's what a car provides us. It's never been uh, um, an investment for that pure sake. Yeah, there's some there's some uh, classic cars and stuff like that that uh, we had a you know friend of ours, Peter Fink, with his uh, classic car stories and collection and stuff. Yeah, those, some of those are definitely investments. But your daily driving vehicle is a cost of life. Um, so I think also, Tony, I think if like in in where we're at, we're in what you know what. Uh, the United States calls the rust belt. I think if a frame is really rusted out on a car and unrepairable or the floorboards are, or, you know, there's some major um, damage to the vehicle. Uh, remember, there was, you were, I don't, I've shown you pictures of this, but we had an old uh, Datsun pickup truck, which is a uh, uh, predecessor to Nissan, but we picked that up on a hoist and where the hoist arms uh, and he only picked it up a couple feet. The frame was so rusty, the back end of the truck dropped to the ground and basically bent it like almost uh, in a V. Um, so um, those are things. If that you do. hit the brakes hard enough, it'll it'll bounce. <laughs> it may, uh, but uh, yeah. So there are a few Here, things. There's there's one thing with that though. In floorboards, rustiness and stuff is is one thing, but frames. So people don't understand frames on cars nowadays. Most cars have a subframe front and rear. And if a subframe rusts out, that can be somewhat of a common repair nowadays. So we've done three of them in the last month between two stores. Um, and, you know, that, that may be a $2,000 fix, $3,000 fix by the time you add in all the extra components because you're going to replace more stuff than just the frame. But... 
that is still a fixable component, I believe, at that point in time because you're replacing parts. It used to be on that Dotson pickup, if the frame rusted out, you're replacing the entire frame from the front bumper to the rear bumper. And that's not the case anymore with unibody cars. So you have subframes. Those are bolt-on parts also. So a lot of people don't actually understand the difference of that nowadays in most vehicles. Still, if you have a if you have a full-size truck, it's going to have a full-size frame underneath of it. So good good points. I know I think I'd leave you with this. Take it to your to a good solid uh, service center in your area that you trust. Even if you're looking at a different vehicle, 99% of the good service centers out there will do a pre-purchase inspection for you on that vehicle. Use that wisely because a shop like ours and many others across the country can they can tell you the good, the bad and the ugly about that vehicle. You can either get a dealer to fix those items or not fix those. If a dealer won't allow you to do that, I'd probably respectfully tell you to steer away from them because they're probably trying to hide something. But have your local service center do a pre-vehicle inspection. Take it to somebody that you know and trust. Because when you do that, like when our customers do that, we're on your side. We're there to make sure you get a good quality vehicle you know, something that, you know, that we can help maintain for you in the future, but we're going to make sure it's a good, solid vehicle, safe and reliable for your family and stuff. So uh, great subject, great uh, thing to talk about. Uh, Rely on your uh, good independent service center. Mike and Tony Tadich from the Glove Box. Hey, this is uh, father and son team, Mike and Tony Tadich. Uh, just want to thank you for hanging out with us again today. So you got anything to wrap up, Tony? It's uh, uh, shutting the glove box time. So we'll see you next time on the next episode. Take care, everybody. Make sure you're here for our next one. Have a question for Mike and Tony? Call it in at 888-201-0858. This podcast is brought to you by TMT Automotive and Momentum Drives Marketing.